Hi there, this is Marie T. Russell. Welcome to the Inner Self audio version of this week's newsletter. As I write this, it's Valentine's Day, a day that is associated with love, usually romantic love. However, since romantic love is rather limited in that it usually applies just to the love between two people, I feel that we need to expand the outreach of Valentine's Day and every day to include not only romantic love, but love for all, in all its forms. This week, we look at love from a broader perspective. We start off with Will Wilkinson, who asks, How do we create world peace? We can get there from here. For what is more loving than world peace? That truly is love by all and for all. We continue our discovery of all aspects of love with Turiya, who recommends releasing the judgment of everything. Because obviously, if we are judging something or someone, there's no room for love. We can't hold two thoughts or two emotions at once, so it's either love or other attitudes and things. And of course, in order to love, to truly love, we must let go of grudges and resentments, whether towards others or ourselves. Robert Simmons assists us in opening the gate of forgiveness, making love and redemption possible. There is also a guided meditation linked to his article so you can experience the gate of forgiveness process yourself. Pierre Pradervan reminds us that gratitude is also an intrinsic part of love in its greater definition. He presents us with a blessing entitled, Thank you for coming, my immigrant sisters and brothers, as he encourages us to open our hearts to immigrants and refugees. Love, whether romantic, platonic, or universal, can require attention and, yes, work. Linda and Charlie Bloom give great suggestions which can apply not only to romantic love, but also to friendships and other relationships in Do You Wish to Keep Love Alive? Here's How. We also have to consider tough love. When dealing with our children, sometimes being loving means taking a path that may, to the child or teenager, seem very unloving and unfair. In does Your Young Child Need a Screen Intervention? Carmen Victoria Gamper gives great advice on how to deal lovingly, yet clearly, with a child who has become too attached to their screens. And perhaps for those of us addicted to our screens, we might take inspiration from her article as well. Another form of tough love is presented in Sarah Barkas's article, A Fight for Life and a Love Story, Saturn-Uranus Square, February 17, 2021. Sarah reminds us that Saturn can be a harsh taskmaster and that his love is definitely of the tough category. And I quote, We won't get away with sitting on the fence this year. We all need to dig deep and stand tall when it comes to the decisions we make and the actions we take. Even if you're not into astrology, I highly recommend reading Sarah's article, as it can help open our eyes to new perspectives. So this year, starting with the Chinese or Lunar New Year, which was on February 12th, and then on to Valentine's Day on the 14th, let us make a Lunar New Year resolution to make love our foremost intention 
focus, and action. And again from Sarah Varkas's article, I quote, This year is both a fight for life and a love story, a battle cry and the dream time of the soul. We're deciding the very future of humanity with our every thought, word, and deed. End of quote. So it comes back to love, our own love story, the love story of the planet and of everyone on it. It's time to take off our limiting blinders that restrict love just for the few, whether that's our immediate family, our friends, those of the same color, religion, country, political leanings, etc. It's time to see the humanity in all of us and see that we are all connected and that love will indeed set us free from tyranny, from darkness, from anything that is not love. When love exists, there's no room for anything else. To borrow and amend the Three Musketeers motto, we can choose to live one for love and love for all. Please stay tuned for the featured articles of this week, some of them read by me and some of them read by the authors. Happy listening! How do we create world peace? We can get there from here. Written and read by Will Wilkinson. How do we create world peace? Einstein advised that we can't solve our problems with the same thinking we used to create them. He also defined insanity as doing the same thing and Hi expecting there. a this different result. This is Marie result. T. Russell. Our human Welcome habit to the inner is to identify a problem and then try to fix it. That must change. But what's the alternative? Examining how GPS works gives us some clues. First, we enter our destination. The system identifies where we are and begins to guide us. So, there are three necessary elements here. Destination, starting point, and guidance. Let's say our destination is world peace. Next, Let's acknowledge where we are right now, personally, in our community, and globally. This is not easy for idealists who mistakenly believe that it's counterproductive to focus on the negative. Yes, getting overwhelmed by what's wrong is depressing, but it is important to acknowledge real problems, like our chaotic world of 2021. The third element in this formula is guidance. With GPS, we get voice directions and maps. As humans trying to solve problems, we get ideas from our minds. But this is the same guidance that created a world in conflict, and it can only direct us towards the same destination, more conflict. The new thinking Einstein is calling for requires accessing a different kind of guidance. Again, GPS gives us an enlightening clue. Directions come from a seemingly transcendent direction, transmitted from a satellite far above us. As John Lennon sang in Imagine, 
one of the all-time great songs about peace, Above Us, Only Sky. I interpret this to mean an absence of dogma. There's no separate God up there, no belief systems with rigid rules and punishment for sinners, just sky. Just the invisible intelligence that fills space and us, steering the stars and digesting my lunch. I call it love, and love's guidance is fundamentally different than what I get from my human mind. My mind produces ideas. Love gives me feelings, and the primary feelings that guide me are gratitude and appreciation. Isn't it rather easy to be grateful for this gift of life, regardless of the suffering that comes along with it? What an adventure! to be alive at this time on a planet facing so many challenges. We can feel gratitude just to be here. Appreciation happens through what we express. While it's habitual to express appreciation reactively, for instance, thank you for whatever, we can also express appreciation proactively. I appreciate you in my life. Appreciation increases value. Love's guidance is a two-way flow. We receive with gratitude, we give with appreciation. It's like breathing, in and out. Gratitude, appreciation. Gratitude, appreciation. It's easy to tell if someone is being guided this way because they're enjoying life and they're in service to others and regardless of personal or global problems, they refuse to be victims. They are contributors, helping to create what we call world peace by ensuring that their own world is peaceful, because love is guiding them in each moment to their single, constant destination, which is uniquely positioned right here in the present moment. Following love's directions takes discipline, and it requires making choices that tend to disrupt familiar habits. For example, the other day I began to tell friends a joke, but I stopped when I realized that, although it was funny, the joke contained sexist concepts and championed behaviors inconsistent with the destination I've chosen, a paradise world filled with loving friends. So I chose to not tell that joke. GPS might tell me to turn right in 600 feet to merge with I-5. Love told me to shut up. We can get there, world peace, from here when we choose that destination. Honestly acknowledge the way things are right now and then follow directions from above. My chosen method? Daily meditation and reprogramming my consciousness through digesting and applying insights like these. I'm glad that others read what I write and seem to find it helpful, but I'm the first one to explore their meaning, and that keeps me humble, because I often realize that I've ignored a few directions and gotten lost. Fortunately, I keep waking up to the equivalent of those comforting words from my GPS, recalculating. This article was written and read by Will Wilkinson, the author of the book Now or Never, A Quantum Map for Visionary Activists.
Releasing the Judgment of Everything, written by Turiya. I loved my work as a computer consultant, designing software, coding, testing, and training the end users. I also made a ton of money and was able to pay off all my student loans and credit card debt. I even bought a Harley-Davidson motorcycle straight off the assembly line. That was fun, to get exactly what I wanted. But life doesn't always give us what we think we want. Losing a Decade of My Life My body went haywire, and slowly everything I built was destroyed. I lost not only my job, but my career and identity as a computer consultant. I lost friends, and I nearly lost my boyfriend. But he stuck around, and our relationship grew into something new, something stronger. He's now my husband. I lost an entire decade, my thirties, spending the majority of my time being sick in bed. I lost all my physical strength, and sometimes even my brain would shut down, causing me to have memory lapses and confuse words, like saying black when I meant white. My husband repeatedly deals with me insisting we've never watched a particular movie, only to have me say, Oh, I remember it now, at the last scene. If you've never had severe pain and fatigue, you can't imagine what it's like to be on the couch, wanting a glass of water and not being able to get it. Until you experience it, you can't know the frustration of having the wrong word come out of your mouth and knowing it's wrong, but not being able to do anything about it except to backpedal and try to explain what you really meant, with words that, yes, you guessed it, also come out wrong. Until you lived it, you can't know what it's like to have an unpredictable body that may or may not cooperate at any given moment. If you've never been trapped in a malfunctioning body, you don't know the heavy judgment we lay on ourselves for not being healthy. There was no car accident or sudden incident to point to. This illness came upon me gradually, like being hit by a thousand tiny trucks over and over. At one point, during one of my early collapses, I argued with myself about calling Rama for help. I had the number to his answering service, so I could have easily gotten a message directly to him. It's easy to sit in judgment and torture ourselves. I thought the pain and fatigue were temporary. I thought I was being weak. I convinced myself it was nothing to worry about, and all I needed to do was exercise more and work harder. Two weeks later... Rama died. Honoring my commitment. After Rama left the body, I spent a lot of time beating myself up over my decision not to call my teacher. He could have healed me, right? Or he could have at least spared me a great deal of suffering. When he was gone, I decided to honor the commitment I made during the teaching empowerment he gave me. Even though I was barely getting through the day, I decided to teach meditation. Going through all the basics with new students turned out to be the most amazing gift. I relearned everything and found not only did it work for the students, it worked for me. I finally started releasing all the judgments I held about my body, about my financial status, and about who I thought I should be. My faith in the teachings grew exponentially. During my lost decade, 
I found incredible support as we created and built Dharma Center. Of course, I would still torture myself from time to time. Old habits are hard to break. One day I did the math and figured if I had stayed in the tech world, I would have earned over $2 million by that point. I would have been able to buy a beautiful house near the ocean that would provide a buffer from the world. I would have been able to write large checks to support the teachings. And the bright minds I would have been able to mentor. Oh, wait! I get to do that last one now. Accepting my body is high maintenance. I've spent 20 years being poked and prodded by doctors with lots of labels but no real answers. I've tried hundreds of remedies and diets and treatments. I still play in that world from time to time. I do whatever allows my body to become more functional. But what has helped me the most is learning to listen to my body and give it what it needs, when it needs it. I've learned to fall gracefully, keeping in mind what my first Aikido teacher showed me so many years ago. Don't fall, just relax and sit. I've accepted my body is high maintenance. During all of this, I've also somehow learned how to look good even when I feel like crap. Apparently, that is my special Siddha power. So unless you spend a great deal of time with me, or if I tell you, you'd probably never know the condition of my body. The ability to fake looking well is a skill many who live with chronic pain learn. Releasing the Judgment When I finally completely released the judgment of everything, the most amazing thing happened. I let go of who I thought I was and who I thought others were, and I realized I know nothing. I began to have timeless moments where I lived above the pain. There would be bursts of ecstasy and sublime peace. All sense of self vanished as everything flowed in and as me. But always I would tumble back to the apparent reality of suffering. I accepted this also without judgment and lived as best as I could with the body I have. Then one day, quite unexpectedly, the doubt dissolved. The suffering evaporated as if it had never been there. I stood up on a rock my body should not have been able to climb in its exhausted state, and everything shifted beyond all states. I pushed my body to do it, not for myself, but because my student wanted to see the other side of the arch. After sitting in meditation, something surged within me to make it possible. I stood there, in my unpredictable body with all of its pleasure and pain, knowing inner peace and unreasonable joy beyond all of this. I recognized we are beyond all states of being and becoming. Even now, that is all there is. Practice pointers. What judgments do you hold about others? What judgments do you hold about yourself? Are any of them really true? Or are they simply a story you told yourself based on limited information? This article was excerpted from the book Unreasonable Joy, Awakening Through Trikaya Buddhism. Written by Turiya.
opening the gates of forgiveness, making love and redemption possible. Written and read by Robert Simmons. Opening the Gate of Forgiveness, Making Love and Redemption Possible This is from my book, The Alchemy of Stones, Chapter 13, Forgiveness. The chapter begins with two quotes. The first one is from the great psychologist and psychoanalyst Carl Jung. The acceptance of oneself is the essence of the whole moral problem and the epitome of a whole outlook on life. That I feed the hungry, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all the offenders, the very enemy himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? The next quote is from Joseph Chilton Pierce, the author of The Biology of Transcendence. To use the term forgiveness is very corny, I mean, what the heck? But the only way our current culture could clean itself up would be kind of a massive discovery of forgiveness. And now the chapter begins. The goal of spiritual alchemy is to become whole and then unite the human self with the divine self in a spiritual partnership which can ultimately serve, in the words of Paul Levy, to, quote, redeem the entire cosmos, unquote. As we grow up, our egos become more complicated. We grow to resent, both consciously and unconsciously, the judgments we have suffered, and we try to avoid them. Our inner judge learns to project our resentment onto others and to denigrate them, whether openly or secretly. This toxic pattern is repeated endlessly at all levels of human social organization and interaction. Nations behave as irrationally as their fragmented citizens and leaders, often with catastrophically violent results. The projection of evil onto other nations, whether it is, quote, deserved or not, can lead to terrible consequences and it comes out of the same inner fragmentation that makes us as individuals so sensitive to criticism and so ready to judge and condemn others. What if the criminal is ourselves? We are taught that to err is human, to forgive divine. As Jung tells us in the quote above, this statement is correct as far as it goes. But what if the criminal is ourselves? Jung is, of course, pointing to the fragmentation in our psyche and the need to treat ourselves compassionately and kindly. This is a move toward wholeness, and the only move that will allow us to be authentically kind and forgiving of others. The inward gesture that Jung suggests is the same one that Pierce envisions as the only way for human culture to heal through, quote, a massive discovery of forgiveness. In my own healing, 
I have learned that forgiving is not something we nobly undertake as a magnanimous gesture to someone who has wronged us. It is something we do for ourselves, to heal the wounds inflicted within us by the inner judge. Whether we judge ourselves or someone else, the act of judgment wounds us. Forgiveness works to release us from being tied to the fragmentation of our own identity that every act of judgment exacerbates. And, as the alchemists understood, healing within the self reverberates into the world and brings healing there as well. To fully do the work of forgiveness is to withdraw all of the toxic energy from the inner judge. This means we are reminded not to condemn the judge either by viewing it in a bad light. Recognize and welcome your madness. As Jung has said, we would all do well to, quote, recognize your madness and welcome it in a friendly manner. After all, the inner judge was created under events of great stress in which our child selves were in a double bind. The judge acted as a psychological survival strategy, and in a certain sense, it saved us. We might be wise to offer gratitude to the judge. This gratitude is closely related to forgiveness. I could keep going for a long time, getting deeper and deeper into the labyrinth of our inner pathologies, individual and collective, but this building of concepts only takes us so far. Understanding how we have been broken does not by itself make us whole. What is needed is to go into the alchemical crucible of the heart and do the work. The intention of this practice is to bring about an experience in which we feel and recognize the energy of forgiveness in us and in which we discover that forgiveness can bring us into union with the deep self. Each step we take toward our wholeness is a step towards permanent union of our conscious and our unconscious aspects. Opening the Gate of Forgiveness In this practice, we are making a step towards reconciliation. We do this by working through the heart. The goal is to use true imagination, attention, and intention to create a gate of forgiveness in our hearts. We could compare this to writing a software program for a computer. Software contains the programming, which is a set of rules for dealing with data. The program will say something like, quote, when this happens, do that with it, unquote. It is organized to handle input according to the intentions of the programmer. In our case, we are choosing to set up a pattern of intent whereby we will open a space in our heart through which forgiveness happens, whenever the need for it arises. Of course, because human beings are not computers, we are likely to have to practice the program more than once to really get it running. Our old patterns are bound to reappear. How can we return quickly to inner harmony when this occurs? One way is to set the intention of maintaining a gate of forgiveness in one's heart. This gate is simply an image, and with the image we affirm the intention that all beings, whether they are exiled parts of ourselves, other people, souls of the deceased, or other entities, 
are invited to pass through the gate of our heart to experience forgiveness. Offering this and feeling its effects can be a profound and healing experience. It cleanses us of negativity we might otherwise hold on to. By making the offer to all beings who wish to be forgiven, we may even aid in healing processes needed by other souls, deceased or incarnated. If we hold our intention and make forgiveness a type of automatic response, instead of our usual default settings of judgment and blame, we will find new peace in ourselves and our relationships. Forgiveness, powerful and deeply needed. When I lead workshops, the gate of forgiveness is often one of the most moving and significant practices for those who attend. The stones we use, especially celestite, hartonite, rosophia, and sarolite azestulite, readily draw people into a state of gentle receptivity and generosity of heart. The heart is activated and the emotional body is calmed. When I lead the gate of forgiveness practice, I ask participants to attune to one or more of the stones I have just mentioned, or other stones that support the spiritual heart, and to hold them over the heart chakra while meditating. Then I invite them to create an inner image of themselves within their own hearts, standing next to a gate. If the gate is not already open, I ask them to open it and to stand beside it inwardly inviting all beings who wish to experience forgiveness to come through the gate of the heart. The meditation lasts about ten minutes, and soft, heartful music is played in the background. Afterwards, I ask people to write down what they saw and who came through the gate. The envisioning of the gate of forgiveness is one that people seem to do quite readily. Even those who tend to have trouble visualizing quickly find their image of themselves standing beside their gate. Often, they are surprised by how the gate looks. This is a good thing because such surprises mean that the deep self is paying attention and is participating in the practice. The same holds true when the process really begins and beings begin to come forward and pass through your gate. It is amazing what a powerful and deeply needed thing forgiveness is. In my workshops, people have often reported seeing themselves come forward to go through the gate. Also, frequently seen are family members, friends, spouses, and others with deep emotional ties. Once, an aborted fetus came through for a woman, asking her forgiveness for not becoming her child. Several times, people have reported friends or family members who committed suicide coming through their gates to be forgiven. It is amazing to be present for some of the powerful healings that occur through this practice. Another type of occurrence which has happened with some of the workshop participants is the phenomenon of people unknown to them coming through their gates to be forgiven. In some cases, only a few figures come through, but more frequently, there are long lines of beings, hundreds or even thousands, and some people the procession is deliberate and relatively slow-moving, but for other people, they report a rush of figures literally pouring through their gates. What is happening here? One possibility 
is that the many fragments of oneself which were cast into exile through countless incidents in one's life are all coming back into the heart. I believe this is sometimes the case, and in those instances the participants display strong emotions of relief and joy. In the majority of cases, people who experience many beings whom they do not recognize pouring through their hearts do not report powerful emotions. They usually seem to be primarily witnessing an event which is of great importance to the beings pouring through their gates, but which is not personal to them. The impression I have, and which many participants have expressed, is that these multitudes of beings are the souls of people who have died and who need to experience forgiveness in order to move forward spiritually. Because this type of thing has happened every single time I have facilitated this process, my conclusion is that there is a huge need for forgiveness among the souls of a great many people who have died, and that an offering such as we make in the Gate of Forgiveness practice is of major importance to those souls. It is clear that all of us still living also need forgiveness in some area or another, and that we all need to forgive ourselves in order to become whole. Perhaps there is something similar going on in the soul realm. There's no doubt in my mind that the recurrent floods of souls coming through the hearts of participants who make the generous offer of unrestricted forgiveness indicates that such practices offer healing beyond what I had anticipated. Apparently, forgiveness is a great and transformative energy, and its effects are more profound than we may have imagined. I feel that more work should be done in this area, and I hope some of the readers of this book will get involved in it. This train of thought takes me back again to spiritual alchemy and its precepts. As I keep emphasizing, it was believed by many alchemists that if the great work of the transformation and perfection of the prima materia, that is, oneself and the outer world simultaneously, could be accomplished by even a single alchemist. It could redeem the whole world and the entire cosmos. When one realizes how much aid may be provided to beings in the afterlife by such simple practices as the gate of forgiveness, one begins to comprehend how enormous the potential may be and one can glimpse that the vision of cosmic redemption held by the alchemists could actually be true. This article was written and read by Robert Simmons and excerpted from his book, The Alchemy of Stones, co-creating with crystals, minerals, and gemstones for healing and transformation. Thank you for coming, my immigrant sisters and brothers. Written by Pierre Praderva. It is most regrettable that most politicians, even at the highest level, ignore the very basics of demography. For instance, 
the average number of births per women needed to keep a stationary population is just above two in our countries. However, the birth rate in the USA and Great Britain is 1.8, down from 2.12 in 2007 for the USA. And in my home country, Switzerland, it is a very modest 1.5. Without the welcome arrival of immigrants, our countries would slowly empty themselves of their population. In Germany, thanks to the massive and very recent increased influx of immigrants and refugees, the birth rate shot up from a low of 1.39 in 2010, at the time one of the lowest, if not the lowest in the world, to 1.5 in 2016. But that's purely the material side of the picture. Non-duality. There is, of course, for the readers of this blog, a spiritual dimension which is as important, if not much more so. In the non-dual vision of spirituality presented so well in the West by, for example, the great American mystic and healer Joel Goldsmith, both my neighbor and I are not separate entities, but the same divine entity, the Godhead, expressing itself in its infinite multiplicity, which nevertheless remains one as the waves in the ocean. Joel, the author of a teaching called The Infinite Way, says that we need to replace the old dualist expression, God and man, by the non-dual term, God as man. Do you not find it infinitely comforting to think of yourself as God expressing herself as you? I suggest you make it a theme of a coming meditation. And of course, the secret is to feel yourself as the divine expressing herself, not think about it. And if it is true of yourself, it is equally true of the Afghan or Central American refugee. Love your neighbor as yourself. This prompts any alert spiritual thinker to retranslate the second commandment love your neighbor as yourself, into its non-dual version, love your neighbor who is yourself, just as every wave is of the very same chemical composition, origin, and cause as the ocean. That is why, from a spiritual point of view, it is extremely narrow and an expression of one's own fear to point to a Honduran immigrant or Syrian refugee as if she or he were some alien body against which one needs to build protective walls, be the walls legal, physical, cultural, or whatever. Let's start looking at them as God smiling at us. In recent years, millions have had to flee their own country for a variety of political, economic, social, and other reasons, such as civil war. The challenge of adapting to a new country culture, language, climate, customs, is daunting, as anyone who has worked with or befriended such people knows. Just to survive, you sometimes need to be a hero, especially if you're a mother with small children. Let us open our hearts wide to these brothers and sisters and really put ourselves in their shoes. How would we respond to such a situation? A blessing for immigrants, refugees, and others arriving in a foreign country.
We bless all those who have had to flee their homes and are attempting to adapt to a completely new setting. We bless them in their unwavering courage, sheer grit, perseverance, and stamina in face of the huge obstacles facing them daily. We bless them in their innate intelligence and adaptability when facing complex rules and regulations, customs that seem to them really strange, if not utterly bizarre. We bless them in their equanimity and strength when facing outright hostility from nationals resenting their presence out of fear or ignorance. We bless the host nations in their spirit of compassion and sharing so that their citizens may be awakened to the immense human, intellectual, and cultural wealth these newcomers represent for them. And finally, we bless all concerned in their consciousness that my sister or brother is myself and that the challenge of integrating these immigrants is truly an amazing gift of the universe in helping all work towards a world built on collaboration and cooperation in all areas that will alone guarantee the survival of the human race. This article was written by Pierre Paradervin, the author of the book 365 Blessings to Heal Myself and the World, Really Living One's Spirituality in Everyday Life. Do you wish to keep love alive? Here's how. Written by Linda and Charlie Bloom. Quite a few people have bought into the widely held myth that long-term relationships eventually become flat and boring. This belief, if unchallenged, can lead to a self-fulfilling prophecy that will eventually create the reality that we fear. Possessed by the expectation that the future is bleak, it's not surprising that many couples can begin a downward trajectory that all too often ends in separation, divorce, or a flat-lined relationship. While it's not possible to prevent periods of doubt from ever occurring, it is possible to strengthen a relationship in a way that minimizes their impact and diminishes the frequency of those occurrences. Not just a little bit, but to a very significant degree. What's required? One of the things required for this to occur is to introduce more novelty into your relationship. The core of the word novelty derives from the French novelte, which means new, fresh. Many associate the idea of novelty with bringing a fresh new relationship into your life, but doing so inevitably becomes problematic, as many have found out the hard way. It is at best a temporary solution and usually includes multiple, often unanticipated, negative consequences. The good news is that it is possible to bring more pleasure, freshness, and juice into your life and your relationship without jeopardizing the foundation of your partnership. 
Keeping a relationship vital after years and even decades requires living life from a commitment to play your own edge by adopting an intention to grow rather than stagnate. You can plant yourself on a path of learning and challenge rather than one of comfort and complacency. It doesn't mean that you feverishly pursue new experiences in frenzy of zealousness, but simply that you become more willing to bring more risk into life to move out of the comfort zone and into the adventure zone. Prioritizing your time and your relationship. Lest you get into the, I'd love to, but there's not enough time syndrome, let us remind you that it's never a matter of having enough time. It's always a matter of how you choose to prioritize your time. Many give other interests a higher priority rather than their relationship. They think that they can afford to put it on cruise control. They think, since we're committed, we don't need to continue to put the time, attention, and energy into things that we did in the early days when our relationship wasn't so secure. Wrong. It's a big mistake to take your partnership for granted and assume that it doesn't require the same kind of care and attention that it did way back when. Worse, it can be a setup for disaster if this neglect continues for too long. Who's responsible? In most relationships, there is one partner who tends to be more concerned about the quality of the relationship than the other. The person who is the stand for keeping romance alive is more likely to notice when it is fading. This is not to imply that he or she has the sole responsibility for keeping things on track, but rather, because of this awareness, they are more attuned to the need for corrections when they are called for. There are a myriad of ways to bring more passion into a relationship, one of which is dating. Don't stop dating just because you're married. We know couples who've been married for over 50 years and still date frequently. Some even attribute their mutual happiness to having regularly scheduled dates to look forward to. They have come up with some innovative ways to spend their date time. Dates can last anywhere from a couple of hours to a couple of weeks, depending on the time and financial resources that you and your partner have available. How to escape or avoid the doldrums. Here are suggestions to help you escape or avoid the doldrums. Take lessons or a class together to learn something new, for example, a sport, a foreign language, or a musical instrument. Volunteer to do community service. If you haven't already discovered it, giving to others enhances the quality of your own life as much as it does others. It also helps you to put your own problems in perspective. Exchange massages periodically. You don't need to be a licensed body worker to bring physical pleasure to each other, and your partner's feedback will help you to perfect your stroke. Go for walks and bike rides in places that you haven't been before. You probably won't need to travel very far to find them. Bring more surprise into your relationship by leaving unexpected gifts, love notes, and bringing unexpected events into your lives. Read love poems to each other. If you favor the exotic, consider poetry from Rumi, Hafiz, or Kabir. 
consider writing some poetry yourself. This is just a starter kit. Don't be limited to it. Feel free to come up with your own ideas. Keeping Love Alive Taking time out of our busy lives to keep love alive will keep our relationship thriving instead of merely surviving. Trying something new can bring more thrills and excitement. So get off the treadmill of just being business partners, roommates, or co-parents and add some spice and fun into the mix. Who knows? It might even become a habit. This article was written by Linda and Charlie Bloom, the authors of the book A Hundred and One Things I Wish I Knew When I Got Married, Simple Lessons to Make Love Last. The article was read by Marie T. Russell, publisher of InnerSelf.com. We hope that you have enjoyed this article. For over 30 years, we at InnerSelf have sought to encourage new attitudes and new possibilities. For more inspiration, visit us at InnerSelf.com. Thank you. Does Your Young Child Need a Screen Intervention? Written by Carmen Victoria Gamper It's completely understandable when parents give their young children their iPhone or iPad to help them wait at a doctor's office, sit at a restaurant, or allow the parent to simply catch up with household errands. But after it happens, their child may continually ask to play with the device. He or she can't seem to be content playing with blocks or puzzles, dolls or play cars. Crafting or tinkering no longer have any appeal. While it's true that children can experience a focused flow state while on electronic devices, they are then usually depleted after screen time. To process that screen time, they need ample time to be active and run around. By contrast, after a good playground or nature session, kids feel happily tired, fulfilled, and joyful, and can often naturally conclude with that experience. Phones and other devices scream, more, more, even when the children are exhausted. How to help wean children off the screen. Here are some tips to help wean your child off screens, Process their experiences on the screen and engage in play once again. First, impose screen-free time. When you announce a phone-free period and take the phone away, and take it far out of sight and reach, expect some protesting and resistance. Depending on the severity of a child's addiction, perhaps tears and even anger at you. Calm your own nervous system with some deep breaths, and let them protest. 
patiently listen to them lamenting and comfort them by saying, I understand. This is really hard for you, but I'm here with you and we'll get through this. And you may see in the end, it may even be fun. Second, examine their enjoyment quotient. Once he or she calms down, ask him or her why they like the phone or iPad so much and let them tell you about their experience in detail. Simply listen without judging or commenting. Listen with interest to what they like about it. Which is their favorite app, game, or show? How they feel when they win or reach the next level? What they do if they could always play on the phone? And any other of their thoughts? 3. Inquire about their physical and emotional state. After listening to them describe their experience, then ask, Do your eyes ever start hurting when you play on the phone or iPad? Does your head ever ache after a while? How does your body feel? Some young children may not feel any physical symptoms, but others may. Ask how they feel after a prolonged phone session. Do you feel like you want to run? Like you want to take a nap? Like you just want to keep playing? Like you're hungry or thirsty? Do you feel down, bored, or zapped of energy? You may also ask, How do you feel after time on the playground or on the beach or in the forest? And whatever their answer, you can simply say, Yes, I understand. That makes sense. You don't necessarily need to explain much or teach about the detrimental effects of too much screen time. All you really need is your own unwavering commitment to wean your child off the phone, knowing you're doing them a great service by helping them reconnect to their enjoyment of hands-on play. 4. Translate screen programs into play activities. When you feel the time is right, propose some ideas for drawing, building, or imaginative play activities. Would you like to draw your game that's on the iPad? I can help you with that, and you can tell me what to draw. Do it even if you're not a great artist. It can be simple symbols that represent the characters or buttons on the screen. How about we form some of the characters you like out of Play-Doh, or build them out of recycled materials and craft supplies? Or, we can play a game or act out a story with your dolls, puppets, or stuffed animals. It really doesn't matter what you do. What matters is that the child is engaged, that you're right there with the child during this weaning-off process, and that you try to really tune into your child's world. He or she may reveal other things to you. For instance, they like the phone because they don't need to think about school, the divorce, or the friends who hurt them. These are vulnerable revelations that help you address the issues underlying the phone addiction. And again, let them talk about it, draw it, or enact it with pretend play materials. These practices are used in non-directive play therapy to help children move through difficult experiences. And you can use these practices at home to connect with your child and be a companion and mentor in their lives. 5. Offer fun distractions. 
Additional effective ways to help wean children off screens is to make the world off the screen really attractive. Bring home a puppy or kitten if that's their wish. Or make an effort to go out in nature regularly. Take trips to the beach or forest where you can help them collect seashells or hunt mushrooms. Over time, you can let them search for treasures of their own liking. With patient, ongoing help, your child may be more and more willing to dive into different activities. Create activity stations for block play, arts and crafts, and other hands-on play and learning opportunities to help them keep busy in the wondrous world off the screen. This article was written by Carmen Victoria Gamper, the author of the book Flow to Learn, a 52-week parent's guide to recognize and support your child's flow state, the optimal condition for learning. A Fight for Life and a Love Story, Saturn in Uranus Square, February 17, 2021. Written and read by Sarah Varkas. Saturn squares Uranus three times this year, in February, June and December. This square is therefore a defining factor in the events of 2021, especially at a collective and societal level. Saturn is the planet of discipline, calendar time, karma and responsibility. Uranus is the planet of liberation, individuality, freedom and innovation. Far from natural bedfellows, these two cosmic heavyweights now embark upon a dance that will see much disruption and unpredictable twists and turns. If you think you know what happens next, think again. If you're certain in your world view, let the edges begin to blur, for much is not as it seems. When Saturn squares Uranus, we are all tasked with building a future from the wisdom of experience, potentized by openness to new possibilities. With the square occurring in the fixed signs of Aquarius and Taurus, the consequences of this time will be enduring and irrevocable. A fixed square leaves no doubt that action must be taken, with a tangible outcome required. We won't get away with sitting on the fence this year. We all need to dig deep and stand tall when it comes to the decisions we make and the actions we take. Uranus in Taurus disrupts the status quo, shifting even the most intransigent conditions and deeply rooted circumstances. Saturn in Aquarius holds us all to account, and hammers home the responsibility we share to steer the human family in a life-affirming direction. The shadow side of this cosmic square dance sees efforts to constrain the creative spirit, to control a narrative and its outcomes, to limit and suppress independent and original thought in favour of towing the party line. 
this square between saturn and uranus insists that we confront what's happening in the world contemplate the facts take in the truth of it and decide where we stand we cannot leave this up to others or allow self-appointed experts to tell us what to believe while freedoms the world over are ever more constrained we retain forever the freedom to come to our own conclusions and act accordingly when we sacrifice that for the convenience of being told what to think all hope is lost saturn wants us resilient wise and strong able to withstand the challenges of life capitalize on its opportunities and carry our share of responsibility it is nothing if not pragmatic if there's a problem deal with it if you've made a mistake own it saturn puts us through boot camp and tests our mettle at every turn it can feel like punishment but when we willingly take our part something begins to shift facing fear becomes a little easier the patience needed to reach our goal is somehow more available our ability to endure when we thought we were broken increases notch by notch saturn wants us whole not fragmented by fear and denial it will do what it takes to get us that way but welcomes us as allies in the process when we can embrace challenge as a catalyst for creativity we come to know obstacles not as life gone wrong or a frustrating distraction but an essential part of existence honed to better shape us for the road ahead saturn matures us placing strength in our heart wisdom in our mind and iron in our soul saturn's in it for the long haul and wants us there too it sees our potential the challenges ahead what we need to endure and the blessings of doing so it rewards us with patience wisdom and foresight inner security and a deep deep peace born of knowing ourselves so well that nothing can shake us or throw us off course for long if however we play the victim bemoaning an unjust fate saturn won't tolerate self-pity and we may feel a sharp thwack across our knuckles no matter how much we can justify feeling sorry for ourselves saturn insists that we rise to meet life not allow it to batter us down it sees self-pity as an intolerable abdication of responsibility and power and we simply cannot afford such a dereliction of sacred duty at this time while saturn holds our feet to the fire uranus invites us to reinvent ourselves it reminds us nothing is set in stone as long as we're prepared to release everything that binds us in the very moment it does so not a week a month or years down the line but immediately freeing familiar pain old beliefs and habits behaviours that sabotage us and conditions that keep us stuck allow nothing to stick in your energy field visualize it as flowing water rushing wind see its constant motion by identifying with the trials of life buying into their drama instead of claiming our freedom we create substance where movement should be calcifying thoughts and feelings unnecessarily recognizing and reversing this process is key to profound and lasting change this year
the moon is conjunct uranus at the time of this first square making the uranian energy of emancipation innovative thought and liberation from past restraints the stronger of the two drives at this point in taurus the moon is sensual physical loyal unyielding and predictable when conjunct uranus it reveals another face of taurus the potential for profound deep-rooted change born of a lengthy process of patient inner adjustment if you've been working away at some project in your life be it inner or outer this saturn uranus square comes as assurance that your hard work will not go to waste if last year felt like swimming against the tide or climbing a mountain with blooded feet this year offers rewards to those with the courage to stand their ground and keep on keeping on regardless of the struggles ahead but this is a long game not a rapid result the inner and outer work required is like no other we've encountered for both people and institutions bottom-up restructuring of everything within and without is called for it's scary overwhelming intimidating and exhausting but it's also exhilarating inspiring and rejuvenating we cannot move through the current state of the world by staying the same we must change we must allow ourselves to be reborn anew realigned pared down to the absolute necessities of life so we can focus and act with great wisdom and much courage this square must be honoured with our full attention deepest respect and steadfast commitment to fully exploit its gifts and graces it will kick-start otherwise lagging change upturn certainties and catalyse issues and themes which shape the coming years the action of this square throughout 2021 will reveal the deepest truths of our lives many of us may be shocked by what we see but from that seeing freedom cannot help but arise with this dance between the past and the future between revolution and responsibility even things we thought we dealt with could resurface for a while relationships may replay old dynamics stable situations may go pear-shaped our own inner calm may waver and progress paid for with blood sweat and tears may begin to falter let this come as no surprise these are incredible times of immense challenge it's okay to falter to feel the fear even to lose hope but never let any of these states be the final word for we are in motion on a journey and the sun rises fresh every single day in this square saturn and uranus teach the mind can be our liberator and our jailer if we allow it to oppress us with a refusal to think outside the box question what we hear and apply our own inner knowing to received truths we will lock ourselves in an inner prison devoid of our unique power to discern our own sovereignty but if we can expand our mind to embrace previously dismissed possibilities to view life from a fresh perspective and see ourselves anew unbounded liberation awaits 
the veils between the egoic and higher minds are paper thin now and we can break through so easily with just the slightest effort if we choose this year there are new vistas waiting to be seen something we simply haven't perceived about our situation can revolutionize the path ahead in the moment of its revelation in no way is this square an easy aspect but easy is overrated when a total overhaul of humanity is in the mix as the world locks down and big farmer is increasingly touted as the messiah we are each of us tasked with doing our part to birth the future we want to be our reality if we don't rest assured someone else will do it for us we are our own saviours sovereign to the end never has it been more important than now to know this in our very bones if however we allow the shadow side of saturn in aquarius to inform our choices we risk giving in to fear of the unknown allowing anyone who offers certainty no matter their motives to become our master saturn in aquarius can be very reluctant to stand up and be counted or do the opposite of what others expect it seeks security in being part of the crowd no matter the sacrifice of sovereignty that crowd may demand in return but to the extent that we surrender our inalienable right to think for ourselves tension will increase as this year progresses we're being shaken awake to finally live life on purpose bold and brazen in our assertion that we all have a right to be free this year is both a fight for life and a love story a battle cry and the dream time of the soul we are deciding the very future of humanity with our every thought word and deed it requires bold commitment and the courage to pursue innovative solutions to old problems solutions which dare challenge all called normal up to now the choice is leap now or be pushed later but either way we must shift at some point this square between saturn and uranus says best get on with it today for standing still is no longer an option the future our future awaits this is sarah varkas from awakenings astrology thank you for listening in today this article was written and read by sarah varkas sarah is an intuitive astrologer with a passion for applying planetary messages to the ups and downs of everyday life I'm Pam Younghans, and this is my astrological forecast for the week of February 15th to 21st, 2021. A major transition point is reached this week. The energy for this shift has been building since late December, when Saturn entered Aquarius. Since then, Saturn and Uranus have been slowly moving into position for the rendezvous by square aspect. 
They will be precisely square, separated by exactly 90 degrees, on Wednesday, February 17th. The Saturn-Uranus square, which will repeat on June 14th and December 24th, is the most significant astrological influence of 2021. It represents a challenge to our plans and expectations, but also an opportunity for us to jump tracks in some way, to make a shift in consciousness that radically alters the course of our personal and collective future. Saturn and Uranus have very different agendas and methods, which complicates any interaction between them, especially a hard aspect such as the square we're currently working with. Saturn deals with physical manifestations and social structures, while Uranus activates the higher mental planes and a consciousness that goes beyond the third dimension. And even though Saturn is now in progressive Aquarius, the sign that is ruled by Uranus, it still tends to be somewhat conservative, dedicated to working within existing forms as it realizes change. While step-at-a-time progress can be beneficial, Saturn's vision can be limited by a certain perception of reality and a more traditional approach to creating new forms. Uranus, on the other hand, works intuitively, without a net. It is too restless and impatient to work within existing systems. Instead, it breaks down old paradigms to allow the new to be birthed. Currently transiting through earthy, grounded Taurus, we can think of Uranus as cracking the eggshell so that the hatchling can emerge, or splitting the concrete so that a seedling can grow. To paraphrase an old Johnny Mercer song, when an irresistible force, Uranus, meets an old immovable object, Saturn, something's got to give. As the two planets square off for the first time this week, we can expect more earthquake-like events that will shake us up, that crack our old perceptions of reality, so that ultimately we can birth a new world. Or perhaps more accurately, we could say that events catalyzed by the Saturn-Uranus square have the potential to alter our awareness so that we perceive potentials that we may have only glimpsed previously. As always, any time Uranus is activated, we can experience both breakthroughs and breakdowns. We are also advised to expect the unexpected this week, since Uranus likes to express itself in radical ways. Surprising events that may feel destabilizing can actually provide a more direct route to an expansion of consciousness as we seek answers outside of our usual frame of reference. Remember that Uranus has several aliases, which include God of Chaos, as well as God of the Starry Heavens. Moon aspects to the other planets are mostly very short-lived, usually only in effect for a few hours. This is why I don't usually reference moon aspects in this forecast, other than events such as lunations and eclipses that do have a longer-term influence. But this week, the moon will be playing an important role in the unfolding of events. On Wednesday, the day the Saturn-Uranus square perfects, the moon will be in Taurus. Luna will be exactly square Saturn and conjoin Uranus at 9.48 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, just a little more than one hour before the exact Saturn-Uranus event, which occurs at 11 08 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The broader effects of the Saturn-Uranus square are, of course, not limited to Wednesday nor to this week, but the Moon's involvement on that day in indicates a likelihood of heightened and potentially erratic emotions and behaviors. In mundane astrology, which is the study of how the planets affect groups and nations, the Moon symbolizes the common people, public affairs in general, 
women and children, and crowds. Although each of us is working with the influence of the Saturn-Uranus square in our own individual lives, we may see the effects of this first square manifesting in a very public way. The Omega Chandra symbols for the 8th degree of Aquarius, where Saturn will be on Wednesday, shed additional light on some of the energies we'll be working with on that day. And since Wednesday is actually the birthday of the Saturn-Uranus square, these themes will continue to play out over the course of the year. Here are the symbols and their interpretations from astrologer John Sandbach. The Omega symbol is, a man experiences much pain and discomfort as wings sprout on his back. The letting go of any personal limitations can be difficult and can create fear. This degree believes without reservation that people are capable of change and can be very encouraging of the process of them doing so, no matter how hard it is. To enter into a new way of being requires new abilities and skills, and this degree has a clear sensing of what these are and how to develop them. The Chandra symbol for this degree is a book. The words in it keep changing. When you quit expecting life to be consistent, everything becomes more interesting. This degree can look at the same thing again and again and each time see something different. This is much truer to how things really are. Its multiple interpretations, when shared, can help others to be more open-minded and flexible in their assessments. The other planetary aspects that occur this week are not as significant as the ones we've been discussing, but they will inform our mental and emotional states on a shorter-term basis. Here are my day-by-day, -day, very brief interpretations of the other influences we'll be working with over the course of the next seven days. On Monday, Mercury is semi-square series. This is a minor aspect. It does indicate difficulty communicating our thoughts and needs to others, in particular family members. On Wednesday, Mars is semi-square Chiron. This is also a minor aspect. It might involve angry exchanges as some latent insecurities arise. We may be uncertain of what we truly want and need or how to assert ourselves. And this is the day of the Saturn-Uranus square. On Thursday, the Sun enters Pisces. This is the last sign of the zodiac, and so we are entering a month-long phase of releasing what has been and surrendering to the callings of our soul. Venus is semi-square Chiron on this day. This is a minor aspect, but it can involve hurt feelings if we base our self-worth too much on whether or not we feel accepted or rejected by others. On Friday, Venus is square Mars. This represents tension between the receptive and assertive aspects of our own natures, or between the feminine and masculine forces in the outside world stubborn resistance to being told what to do or how to do it. Jupiter is also semi-square series. The need to be needed can interfere with our ability to say no, leading us into unhealthy situations. There is a tendency to seek nurturing and reassurance through food or overindulgence. On Saturday, Mercury stations direct. As Mercury begins to move forward again in Aquarius, it supports the implementation of the new ideas and insights we have gained through introspection over the last three weeks. On Sunday, Venus is conjunct Pallas Athena. Artistry, creativity, and inventiveness are enhanced. This can also manifest as a strong female taking a stand and a focus on humanitarian concerns and equal rights for women. If your birthday is this week, 
Your capacity for insight is enhanced this year, and you may also reach a deeper understanding of your life purpose. There is an inner strength that you can call upon now, based in your ability to see what steps will lead you and others into a more enlightened future. You may be particularly drawn to humanitarian causes and social reform, or perhaps to working with vibration, color, and sound to facilitate healing for yourself and others. I hope you have a very good week. This is Pam Young-Hans. We hope you have enjoyed this week's newsletter and its featured articles. For over 30 years, we at Inner Self have shared new attitudes and new possibilities with our readers all over the world. For more inspiration, visit us at InnerSelf.com. Thank you.